Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our Advent series. Advent is not merely a time where we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ, but rather a moment where we eagerly anticipate the return of our King. This series aims to use the Old Testament prophecies to remind us of the good news of not only Jesus' birth, but His reign and the moment He'll come again. To find out more about our Christmas services, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. But for now, enjoy the message. So the first part of the scripture today um, is Revelation 21, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. The God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we'll move on to the second part. Which is um, Isaiah 53, verse 1 to... One to five. Um, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and and rejected by mankind a man of suffering, a familiar and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank God. Thanks, Emma. Let me, um, let me read those last two verses for us. I, uh, I gave you the wrong heads up at the end there. It says this, verse four and five, surely who took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're here and that uh, you're gonna talk to us right now. You're gonna reveal something about yourself that might be fresh not because it's changed, but because you're changing us by your spirit as we hear it. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, thank you that right now as we step into the Christmas season, uh, you don't hold guilt or shame over us for not doing it with intentionality enough. You just sit there with invitation and open arms going, hey, come revisit the hope. Come revisit the peace, the joy, the love. Come step back into the story. Find your heart warmed. And so, Lord, we do that right now with your scriptures. And we do that in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Awesome. 
Well, if I hadn't had a chance to say a warm welcome to everyone here, my name's Alex. I get to serve as the pastor at New Life Brisbane. And uh, today we're stepping into our Advent series. And every single year we ask this question, you know, how do we make Christmas fresh? Because we do it every year and we run the risk of what I want to call the sin of over-familiarity. You know what I mean? Oh, Christmas. That time again, it's happened, here we are. And every time I sort of kick myself going, I wanna be more intentional next year and have like a reading plan and sort of do the professional Christian thing really, really well. I just wanna say, if you feel that way, you're in good company because I haven't done it again this year, but tomorrow's a new day. Pray for me as we open up the scriptures, my wife and I this week. But I will say this, Advent, uh, let me just define some terms before we unpack where we're going. Advent comes from the Latin term adventus, which means to come or coming. And the reason this season, this moment, this festival, this time has been passed down through the calendar of the church is to give Christians an invitation to remember and anticipate the coming of Jesus, what was in the first century through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and what will be in his second coming, the making of all things that are new. And to do this is is to remind ourselves of the story of which we're a part, to therefore give us reference to how we should live our lives and inhabit this moment because this time of year comes around every single year and there's a whole host of things vying for our attention, telling us what's most important, what we should center our imagination around and how we should spend our days. I remember reading a book a few years ago uh, by the name of After Virtue, uh, written by a guy named Alastair McIntyre and he was talking about ethics, which is a lot more ethereal than I want to spend our afternoon talking about. But he had this wonderful quote that made sense of ethics as they were passed down through the generations. And as a philosopher, he wrote these words. He said, I cannot, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? Do you feel that? It's not just true for the Christian. It's true for every single individual, no matter their background, no matter their worldview. Each of us find ourselves in a world and we need to tell a story about that world to make meaning of the way we inhabit it so that we can do so with intentionality and even understand why we do what we do. And the same is true for the Christian during Advent. What's the story on the street of what Christmas means? Great question. The church throughout the generations has not left that question unanswered for what it means for a Christian. And the four things we orbit our attention around at Advent are simply this, love, peace, joy, and this afternoon, hope. Hope, I wanna talk about hope. Uh, I remember a few years ago reading a book by a guy named Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and he popularized through a means of um, psychotherapy Uh, called Logos therapy, sort of using words to talk to yourself and counsel yourself, kind of like preaching to your soul, but with like a psychotherapist's analytical mind to back it up with sort of credibility. But the interesting thing about Rick DeFrankel is he was a Jewish man who lived around the time of the Holocaust, the rise of the Third Reich under Hitler. And he himself was a prisoner of Nazi Germany, and he even went to Auschwitz. And I don't know if you know much about sort of modern history in the middle of the 20th century, but millions and millions of Jews lost their life under the Third Reich and the brutality of Hitler. And as he found himself in these camps, the likes of which caused the death of millions and millions of people, the question for him as a psychotherapist was this, what helped people survive? Now for some, There was external circumstances which didn't allow them to survive, termination. But for those who remained, 
See, one of the causes of death was sure all the external things like the troops and the militia, the army, the guards. But one of the other chief causes of death was people just giving up, rolling over, and their life ending. What caused them to hold on? And Frankel, as a psychotherapist, had one word, hope. There were individuals who reminded themselves daily, oh, there's a light at the end of this tunnel. I don't know how, don't know when, but we will be liberated. There's coming a day where the muck and mire and dirge and brutality of the Holocaust gas chambers and prisoner camps will be done away with. Hope. I think hope is a Christian currency. And I think it is a bit of a commodity we need to not take for granted. And, but here's the question, what is hope? And I've got two brief points for us this afternoon as we unpack what hope is. And those two points are this, I think hope is a cosmic promise and a personal assurance. A cosmic promise and a personal assurance. So we come first to the cosmic promise of hope. And we do so through the first text that Emma read for us, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. You open up the book of Revelation. In fact, I was chatting with someone this afternoon, uh, and uh, they said, the book of Revelation at Christmas? This is going to be a good afternoon. And I was like, oh, I really understand that, because when you come to the book of Revelation, there's so many, like, just competing frameworks for it. Some people think it's pronounced Revelations. It's not. It's Revelation uh, with no S on the end. Thank you so much, Aaron. <laughs> a lot of people will treat this text as sort of like a, a code by which to decipher where we are in the timeline of history and what kind of suffering might come next for us. A lot of people will use this text as a means by which to uh, identify particular political figures in our current cultural moment and use them as signs by which to say, well, this is where we are and therefore this is what we can expect and, and let's hold a prayer meeting or something like that. For other people, this is just an outdated text which is part of this Christian archaeology which we should all do away with in the first place because God's not real. What is Revelation? What does it mean? Let me just give us a big picture overview um, of the book of Revelation before we look at this text. But the, the big picture thing would be, would be this. In the scriptures, you've got 66 books. This, this is the last book. And this is sort of like the closing final chapter. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, you've got the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, the silver chair. Well, the final book's called The Final Battle. And in a sense, Revelation is sort of like the final battle of the scriptures. Uh, and it's written towards the back end of the 90s in the first century, around 96 AD, many people think. Written by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, who biographied Jesus' life and who started his Gospel. You might know these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In verse 14, the Word became flesh. Hashtag Christmas. And this guy is sitting on an island called Patmos, starving, ready to lose his life as he's suffering for the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus appears to him in a vision. And what's really central about the book of Revelation is that it's not John's revelation. It's Jesus' revelation through John to his church. And he writes a letter. And in the original Greek, the word that he gave title for this letter actually isn't the word revelation. That's our translation of it. It's the word apocalypsis. And you hear that word, and I think of like 2012, the movie, or like Left Behind. 
All the images of fire and brimstone, flame and torment, people being whisked away and wondering, am I part of God's chosen? It's not what apocalypsis means. Apocalypsis simply means revealing. Revealing. And here's what the book of Revelation wants to reveal. Written towards the back, of the fir- back end of the first century to Christians suffering immense persecution, it wants to reveal something to them not necessarily about the future, but about the meaning behind the here and now so that they might persevere. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Now there's a debate around how we treat the first through to the 20th chapter. Has that happened? Is that happening? What will it look like when it happens? And to that, I just say, vote for us teaching on the book of Revelation at some point in the future. But here's what we do know. When John writes chapter 21, He's summing up history. And he's giving us something to hold on to as what I want to call the light at the end of the tunnel. And here's what he says. To suffering Christians in a broken and tragic world, he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. Heaven and earth married back together. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In short, God's making this cosmic promise that there's coming a day where he says, out with the old, in with the new. Who remembers Backyard Blitz growing up? A couple of us. This thing was popular, Jamie Jury. He had a sort of counterpart TV show called Domestic Blitz, and every single time this came on, I ran to the couch, and I sat down, and I watched. Because I loved it. I loved the thought that with the power and the expertise of someone who's very versed in the blitzing of a backyard, that they could turn this thing in 48 hours without the knowledge of the owner into this absolute muck and mire, bamboo-infested terrain, into this oasis with a swimming pool. For free. I think pools cost like 100 grand. I was talking to my neighbor the other day. It's not cheap. I want backyard blitz to, to meet with me. That'd be really helpful. Thank you, Jamie. But here's what would have to happen in order for the beauty and the triumph and the victory and the bliss all to occur in this space. They'd have to get rid of the old and create a blank canvas. And here's the point of the book of Revelation, summing up the final battle, not just of the scripture 66 books, but of history itself. The one that God spun from start to end who wants to intersect, not just in the person of Jesus, but maybe in your life. Here's what he's saying. Uh, There's gonna be an old that has to be done away with. It's called evil. It's called sickness. It's called suffering. It's called sin. And there has to be a new. In fact, there will be a new that gets ushered in. The brokenness replaced with beauty, the tragedy replaced with triumph, all because, not because humans are amazing and we fixed it finally, not because we've sort of given up on the project self, but because God comes back. Jesus comes back. I remember sharing this story a few times here, and I'll share it again now. We were at a small group in Sydney a few years ago, and uh, we went around the circle introducing ourselves. You know those little icebreakers you do? My favorite one is to ask, what's your favorite smell? People always respond to that really differently. Uh, But we were asking the question, uh, what's one thing about you we need to know? High stakes. So everyone's sharing a few things. I'm sharing something like, I used to make coffee, awesome. Others are sharing really trivial things. One person gets up and she says, hi, my name's X, and uh, the thing you need to know about me is I can't wait for Jesus to return. 
Now, that sounds awesome, but I remember thinking, way to flex, champion. Like, what do you mean? That's a bit cryptic. But you read this passage, and here's the thing. The early church was really good in the midst of persecution, suffering, grief, and pain to pray what they call Maranatha. God, come. Jesus, return. We need you. Why? Because there's an old that needs to be done away with. There's a new that needs to be ushered in. Now, this is really interesting, and I think I want to apply it in this way. I think this teaches us that grief is okay. Um, you, you know suffering in this life, and uh, I know suffering in this life. And I used to think, I used to have a sermon when I was an apologist, um, someone who would answer objections to the Christian faith. I used to have a sermon on suffering. And I, I reread it recently, having gone through something myself. And uh, everything in there is true and good. But I finally understood it on the other side of my pain. Uh, recently walking through something uh, that's really painful and there's this part in you when you actually get a bad diagnosis or news you didn't expect or a situation you weren't intending there's this part in you that goes like literally why me not why God but why me I'm okay with the stats in everyday life but I didn't think I'd be one of them and you do this thing when you're like oh why me and now, the analyst in, my, in, in, in me, that's my personality type, I'm like, now where's the theological box I can put this in to make the world okay? I had a good friend sitting down with uh, me on my steps one morning, and, uh, and he said, bro, it's not okay. This is a tragedy. And I remember thinking, why does that vocabulary resonate so well with me right now? It's not an explanation of what I'm going through. It's not a theological category that makes everything okay. It's an ultimate answer that says grief is grief. You can mourn it, experience the pain. Call a spade a spade. And I think the promise that there is one day coming where the evil will be done away with and the good, the beautiful, the true, Jesus Christ himself, the presence of God will be ushered into this creation, restoring, renewing, redeeming, allows us to say that in this moment we're just not there. And that's a huge contrast to the other stories of the world. There's three stories of the world that view history, uh, our moment, and suffering in a particular way, and all of them fly poorly in the face of this beautiful cosmic promise I'm talking about. There's a table on the screen behind me. Classic. <laughs> Eastern pantheism typically would say that history, the way it unfolds, is cyclical which is why you might hear Eastern people particularly talk about reincarnation. This world just keeps repeating itself and repeating itself and repeating itself and repeating itself and we're not going anywhere, but man, we're hoping to be better along the way, which is why Buddhism and Hinduism particularly talk about paths by which we can grow and attain some kind of righteousness and enlightenment and purity and nirvana. Uh, we wanna move through the cycles um, that history is sort of walking through. In a sense, there is no history. It's just a repeat and a repeat and a repeat. But if that's your view of history, then here's what it means for how you engage suffering. You just deny it. In fact, one of the key tenets of pantheistic faith is that life is suffering and the best thing to do is to detach yourself from loves so that you might freely deny the suffering you're going through. That doesn't resonate with my heart. Another way by which to look at history is the Western optimistic view. The idea that if you can dream it, you can do it. If there's a problem, humans can solve it. We just need better education, better welfare, better social nets, better 
insert the rest here, and there's this belief that in and through humanity, we will reach the utopia, we will get back to the garden, the beautiful city we all long for, it's gonna be achieved through human ingenuity, human might, human wisdom. But here's what you do therefore in the face of suffering. You gotta, de- you gotta despair in it, why? Because it's this constant reminder that you're not there yet, and no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter what technology you employ, we're just not gonna get there. If it's politics, too bad. If it's technology, not working. If it's science, unfortunate. As beautiful and helpful as all these things are, they're not the answer. So you despair. And then there's this sub-Christian, I'd almost say heretical view, which sort of suggests that earth is going to hell in a handbasket and we're just greasing the wheels on a train that's running off a cliff and God just wants to wipe everything out and start afresh. Not true. God's coming to renew, which looks like destroying and getting rid of the decay, magnifying that which is beautiful. So that under the Lordship of Christ, the book of Revelation literally says all the kings of the earth will bring their gifts doesn't sound like he's wiping everything away. He's going to be this beautiful, nuanced artist who recreates, renews this beautiful, beautiful world. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it means we're free to grieve, but we're not free to despair as Christians. We're free to grieve, but we are not free to despair. Paul says it like this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Christians have hope. Which means if you're walking through something right now, here's what you get to do. Don't deny it. Like, don't sit there and say, this doesn't matter. Don't sit there and say, this, this is pointless. No, no, no. If you're walking through suffering right now, don't, don't detach from it. If you're walking through pain and hurt and grief right now, don't despair. Grief would say, I need to process this emotionally. This is hard. Life's a bit crap right now. Despair would say, nothing matters. Nothing ever will matter. And I don't, I don't believe in anything anymore. Now, just to be honest, I have felt that way in my own life through some of the grief that I've walked through. But there's this invitation from the Spirit of God, just seeding and planting hope afresh going, what would it look like for you to hope again? Take me at my word. There is a light at the end of this tunnel. Grieve, but not like the rest of mankind who have no hope. One hymn writer put it like this. He said, though dark be my way, since he's my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. Though systems be broken and creatures all fail, the word he has spoken shall surely prevail. Since all that I meet shall work for my good. The bitter is sweet, the medicine food. Though painful at present, it'll cease before long. And then, oh, how pleasant, the conqueror's song. How pleasant it will be on the day when all the tears we've shed, the Father will kneel down and wipe away himself. How beautiful and delightful it will be when all the pain, the brokenness, the tragedy we've experienced, it won't just be explained, it'll be finally answered with the death knell of the returning king who says, I'm done with this. Step into my presence, receive my glory. That's a cosmic promise that'll pull you through. Do you know that hope? It's the conqueror's song. A cosmic promise and a personal assurance. See, here's the thing, the conqueror's song. What's he conquering? Like, what's this guy conquering when he comes back? And the answer is really simple, it's evil. It's sin. 
There's a king, here's the promise of the Bible, there is a king who is coming to wage war on evil. Yay. Kinda. Sickness, death, decay, wrongdoing, it will all be swallowed up in his triumphant return. That's good news. That's good news for each of us. Some of you right here have chronic illness that you're walking through. That'll be gone. Some of you here have lost loved ones. They will be restored. Some of you here have unexplained grief and suffering. That will be made sense of at the return of the conquering king who comes to do away with evil once and for all. What's this hoped for king? Here's what I think this does for us, though. Um, actually, no, I'll go there in a second. Yeah, we're there now, actually. We're there now. Um, upon my reflection, I think the promise of a king who's coming to do away with evil, it's an incredible promise. But there's times in my life where it could feel like a death sentence. And the reason for that is the biblical story. Now, I'll get to the biblical story in a second, but let me just go to a, a different voice that might unpack it first in a more gentle way, and then I'll come home with the Apostle Paul. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and he's a prisoner of war in uh, the camps that were run by the Soviet Union. And in those camps, uh, he experienced some of the worst human suffering and saw the face of evil, the likes of which had been almost unparalleled if it wasn't for the Third Reich that I talked about earlier. But there he is in the gulags of the Soviet Union and he's reflecting on the nature of evil and what evil is, what evil isn't. And what helps us tell the difference between not just what evil is, but who indeed might or might not be evil. And he's reflecting and looking into his own heart. And he came to the sobering conclusion that despite the brutality and the force and the brokenness of the Soviet Union, to which he was subject as a prisoner of war, he realized that even in his own life, in small, yet over time significant ways, he'd done wrong himself. And he writes this scathing sort of quote that I'm gonna read for us in a moment, that really brings home something that I think is true as a Christian. He put it like this, he said, the line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through the human heart. And he was hinting in that reflection, this introspective meditation upon one of the key affirmations of the Christian story that makes hope so hopeful and also so scary. That evil is not just the out there other, nation, political party, individual that have done wrong. It's the internal disposition of the heart that needs to be atoned for. Which means if the Bible promises a king who's coming to do away with evil, where do we stand with him? What do we do about the evil in our own hearts? And this is why what the prophet Isaiah writes is so incredible. If I was to ask you, we asked this question at youth group a few weeks ago actually, list for me the virtues of a king. What virtues would you expect a king to have? And so the boys in the room we were with started to share things like power, passion, I feel like I need to think of another P word, but I can't. Wisdom, 
strategy. What stuck out to me is power. We would expect a king to have power. And then here's the question. With those virtues, what kind of kingdom would that king establish? And I think that makes sense to us as humans. My wife and I recently went and watched the new Napoleon film. Under the rule and reign and leadership of Napoleon, they conquered so much of Europe. Blood, war, sword, guts. He was a brutal man. I think it was just over two million people from his army alone, coalition armies, sure, died fighting for him. They killed millions of people. If you're a powerful king, a wise king, a strategic king, you will conquer people, but it'll be with force, and it won't last long, and it'll be by the sword. When you open the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is written six, maybe 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, and the Jews, they're in exile. They're outside their promised land, their beautiful town, their holy city. They've got no temple anymore. They've got no seat of government anymore. And they're in a land not their own under the subject of the brutal Babylonians. And they're asking this question, when will God return in the face of a king to do away with the evil out there? And the book of Isaiah, over 60 plus chapters, start to prophesy this king. And this is how biblical prophecy typically works in the Old Testament. It sort of casts a silhouette of the kind of thing we should look for that the New Testament gives us like a HD TV for in the face of Jesus Christ. That's just like an, an image I wanna give you in your mind right now. And it starts to talk about this servant, a servant of the Lord, which in other biblical texts is usually this kind of character that's gonna be a king, that'll be the arm of the Lord who will do away with evil and injustice. And there's four poems that talk about this particular servant and one of them's Isaiah 53. And let me pull out a few things. These are the virtues that the prophet Isaiah says to look for in the coming king. 600 years before the person of Jesus. It says, look for someone that's naturally unattractive to you. Verse two, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Look for someone, some kind of king who's not lofty and far off, but who has solidarity with your suffering. He said, verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And then he said, finally, the most countercultural, controversial, upside down thing. Look for someone who wants to deal with your sins. Verse four and five, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. How does prophecy work? It casts forward this vision, this silhouette, this sort of like side angle profile of the kind of thing we should look for. And the way Jesus fulfills them, particularly in the Gospels, is he steps into that silhouette, turns from Sidon, looks us dead in the eye and says, I'm the guy. I'm the suffering servant king. Not come with sword, but come with love. Not come with a rifle or conquering power, but come with meek, service-orientated, others-focused mercy and 
grace, which is why as the writers of the New Testament letters are looking back on the life of Jesus, whereas the Isaiah prophet was looking forward toward the life of Jesus, Peter, the apostle, would put it like this. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. So why do I bother with all this? I bother because the hope of the cosmic promise is a death sentence until we understand the personal assurance we've got in the king who came to give his life for us. Do you see that? Do you see, this is the most important part of today's message, that we do not get the hope of the cosmic promise, the renewal, the beauty, the love, the mercy, the grace, the ultimate redemption of all things, unless the king we claim to follow into that new world, we have personal relationship here, right. Now, let me quote from Tim Keller, who sums it up in five minutes, it took me 10. Christian teaching for centuries has been this. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve so that someday he can return to earth to destroy evil without destroying us. That'll get you out of bed of a morning. This purifying, renewing, cosmic promise is available to all those who are in Christ. And the line that divides good and evil, not me, the good person, because I'm in church, and everyone else out there, the evil people, because they don't know, but me, the broken sinner, Alex Stark, who needs his sins atoned for, so that when I stand before holy and righteous, redeeming, purifying, loving, gracious, merciful God, I get to say what the suffering servant did, that was for me. Thank you, Jesus. This is the personal assurance. And as I just give us one little illustration just to cap our time, I'd love to invite the band up behind me. Um, Personal assurance does wonders for our life. It gives us stability in the face of uncertainty. It pulls us through the muck and mire of daily life. And we've received two personal assurances. One, if we look forward, the prospect that there's a light at the end of this dark tunnel, it gives us the kind of unwavering foundation to go, I'll stick through. And what I've just unpacked in the second point is kind of the inverse. As we look back, on the cross of Christ and see what Jesus has done for us. It gives us this whole new foundation from which to live our lives. And I think there's two kinds of people in this world, those who have assurance and those who don't. Uh, One of the blessings of marrying into a family with pilots is that we get cheap airfares, often. But the cost we pay is in flying what they call standby. Has anyone flown standby before? You know what I'm talking about. You get through security, you find yourself at the gate, and there's two kinds of people. Those who've got a confirmed flight to Melbourne, and those whose family members might work for the airline you're flying with, because of which you get a standby flight. In other words, you have to wait until there's space left on the flight, five minutes before it takes off, for you to get a guaranteed seat. And so you're sitting there in the gate, just by the lounge, and you're just having all these five-minute check-ins with the hostess at the desk going, 
hey, is there a seat available yet? Hey, it's our anniversary. Do you reckon there's a seat available yet? And you're anxious. But the confirmed guys, they're just sitting there. I saw some guy reading a novel once. It's probably like Russian literature. And I was like, how do you have the poise just to sit there and expect everything's going to be okay? In the Christian life, we don't fly standby. Like we've got a confirmed ticket. And we get so anxious in life. And to get anxious and fear that God's not who He said He was or that He hates me for my sin and doesn't actually accept me regardless of where I've been, what I've done. And it's actually to say, God, I'm going to pretend I've got a standby ticket, that your love's not been confirmed to me yet. And the whole while the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the life of Jesus, the prophecy of Isaiah would say, He Himself in His body bore our sins on the tree. So that when He comes to do away with evil, He won't do away with you. Step into eternal life right now. And here's the question I want to ask you with the cosmic hope, cosmic promise, sorry, and the personal assurance, do you know the hope of Jesus? That's what Christmas is about. So why don't you stand? And I feel it in my heart just to pray particularly for those who might have walked away from the Christian faith, but they find themselves in church this afternoon. And they think, actually, this could be for me. What Alex said Jesus did, I want that to be for me. So why don't you, with every eye closed, every head bowed, just respond to that just by saying, actually, I think that's for me. I want what Jesus did to be for me. Just raise your hand and we'll respond in that way together. If that's you, raise your hand nice and high. I would love to pray with you. Wonderful, thank you. I see those two hands. That's such a blessing. I would love to pray with you. Awesome. And I wanna pray for those others in the room who as you step into Advent season, you just feel far from God. And He would say to you, just, just, just return right now. If you feel far from God and would just love to in some way return, maybe there's a sin that you're struggling with. Maybe there's a thought pattern that's creating tension in your relationship with God. Whatever it is, if that's you, can I, I just invite you just to raise your hand where you are right now. You feel far from God and you'd love to return. Wonderful, thank you. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Beautiful, thank you so much. I would just love, love to pray with you right now. So with every eye closed, every head bowed, we're gonna pray this prayer together and we're particularly gonna pray for the first group of people I identified, those who wanna step into a relationship with Jesus. And what we're gonna pray is a prayer of repentance, which Christians really just get to pray every day. It's called the Christian life. We're just, we're gonna pray together. So if you're comfortable, pray out loud with me. And repeat these words after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for living the life I should have lived and dying the death that my sin deserves. Sorry for running away from you and ignoring you. Please come into my life and help me follow Jesus. Amen. Amen. Awesome. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, we've got a gift for you. It's a Bible. We'd love to gift it to you. And, uh, and I'll have our host team look out for you. Uh, they're already doing so. So just beware. Strangers will come and give you a book. In the meantime, we're going to have some prayer team available. If you want to respond in any way, come and receive prayer. 
God's doing a beautiful thing as we respond in this way. And so maybe, maybe you sit there and you go, each week we get invited to respond in prayer, but I just, I'm not sure it's for me. But you say that every single week. What about this week? Come and just receive prayer. There'll be people with white lanyards on, away from the speakers, so where you can hear them pray. And you can respond to God with what He might be speaking to you. Let's sing. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or connect with us through our Instagram or Facebook page. For more information about Christmas at New Life, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. We pray you have a great week and a very Merry Christmas. Be blessed.